So today, we're uh, continuing in our study, and I think, believe, one of the most exciting books in the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. Not just a book, it's a chapter. Revelation's chapter 19. And I believe it's one of the most exciting books. Um, last week, we began talking about it. And last week, it, we talked about it being the hallelujah course of the New Testament. In that all of heaven was celebrating the destruction of the evil Babylonian worldly system that has held this world captive for, for years and years and years, and finally, it's being destroyed. The term hallelujah is a declaration of praise and conquest because God has delivered his people from their enemies at this time in the in the reading. God's finally meting out the justice that we're so waiting for. That God is permanently crushing man's rebellion against him and that God is displaying his sovereignty and the power that he has over his creation. Never again will there be false, evil religions that are preaching worldly philosophies that would bring confusion and distraction and deceive men. All injustice and unrighteousness will be wiped off the face of the earth and all of human depravity will finally be vanquished. It's an amazing thing that's being discussed in Revelation chapter 19, the first six verses. Then God is going to come and he's going to establish his earthly kingdom on earth. That will begin the millennial reign where Jesus will perfectly reign as king. You want a good government? You know, government is going to happen. You know, politics happen whenever there's more than two people in a room. It becomes political. Just so you know that. But do you want a good government that reigns over you and that serves to serve you? Not that we serve it, but it serves you. Well, that's what it's going to be. When Jesus becomes king and all of evil is wiped away, we will have a perfect society. For that reason, all of heaven is gathered together to worship God. And to sing praises to him. And so all worship is is given to God because he deserves it. And that's why the last two verses we discussed last week, Revelations 19, 5 and 6, says, Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns almighty. And for that, for that's almost enough right there to close the book on the chapter and say, wow, that's awesome. But there's more. <laughs> Sounds like an infomercial, doesn't it? But there's more. <laughs> there's more to rejoice over here. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because we've been celebrating up to this point in time the destruction over evil. We've been celebrating a past victory. That's giving, giving us a good present situation. But now we're going to talk about a celebration of happiness and eternal life that comes with the wedding. And so what's happening now is that the wedding feast is being announced. Do we like weddings? We like to celebrate when two people in love get married, don't we? There's a great day. It's a, it's a great day of potential family, potential happiness, and potential joy. And it's unfortunate that the enemy gets in and messes it up, right? Or we allow ourselves to mess it up. But we're talking about now that there's going to be a great rejoicing in heaven as the wedding feast is being announced and those that are going to be invited are called blessed as they come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So John the Revelator here in what our text is going to be coming up, John the Revelator is showing us what it's going to be like in heaven When the church, the bride of Christ, who we've been singing about today, is finally presented to Christ, the bridegroom, in the form of a traditional Galilean wedding. I find that so interesting as we talk through it this morning. So this is our text. If you can, if you're able, would you stand with me? And let's read our text this morning. If you can't, that's fine. Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. 
Fine linen, bright and clean, was giving her to wear. In parentheses, this, we'll talk about this. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Like he needed to add that. <laughs> but he did, right? These are the true words of God. And verse 10. At this, Paul, John says, I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your words. Thank you for giving us instruction. And thank you for giving us a foreknowledge of what's to come so that we can have peace over this. That it can bring us encouragement and great hope for what is in store as we look forward to that great wedding day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So what we're getting into now is that this is the revelation of Christ's reason of why he came to earth in the first place. Why did he come? Why did Jesus come to earth? He came to redeem and marry his bride. That's why he came. He did a lot of miracles. He did a lot of good things for people to improve their life while they lived this earth. But that wasn't his true purpose. He came to do that. By doing that, he proved who he was, that he was the Son of God. But his purpose was, he came to redeem you and me. And he came to bring a relationship between us as a bride and a groom has. A very intimate, personal relationship. Not one that we get through religion. Not not one that we get by just walking in the church doors. No, it's a, a relationship that comes through a very personal bride and groom relationship. I find that to be very comforting. Do you? Amen. Okay, so now remember, the scene that we're describing is in heaven. Okay, John now has moved to chapter 18. He was talking about things were happening on earth. Now we're, John is revealing what's happening in heaven. That's why we're celebrating here. So what seems so obvious now to conclude that since this scene is happening in, in heaven, and it is before the second coming of Christ, where he actually comes down and touches down on earth, and that the bride is already being described as she's made herself ready and that she's clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, indicating that all of her work is done. She's clothed in her righteousness that comes through Christ. So her work is done. She's completed. She's the bride, made herself ready. That what this means then is that she's already there. So we're not announcing the wedding day. The wedding day has already come in the form of the rapture, and the church has already been raptured, and the church is already in heaven at this point in time in Revelation. What we're announcing now is the fact that there's a wedding supper. And so this is really saying that this is another reason why many people really believe that the church is taken in a pre-tribulation rapture. That the bride of Christ will be taken to her father's house and will escape the wrath of the father. Let me say it another way, maybe the way that we can understand it. What father-in-law would bring wrath on his future daughter-in-law? What good father would go through the the work of the contractual arrangement for the wedding and prepare all the wedding, and then before he welcomes the bride into the home, he says, okay, now I'm going to beat you, and I'm going to pour my wrath on you. That doesn't make sense. And not only does it make sense, and I'm not I'm not trying to reason to your senses, I'm trying to look what the Bible says. The bride has already made herself ready. She's already dressed in her wedding clothes. She's in, in her righteousness that, that are proven by her white linens that she's wearing. And now she is in the presence of the Father. And what we're doing now is that we are inviting people to the wedding supper, which is after the consummation of the wedding. So what I find that we're going to find, I believe, very interesting is that by God's plan that the Galilean Jewish wedding tradition that 
we don't probably know about, unless you've studied it, mirrors so much of what happens in this last time. The wedding feast that happens through a Galilean wedding is really amazing how it mirrors prophetically what's going to happen here. And I look at it, you know, God is a planner, right? God plans things in advance. And so I don't think there's any coincidence here that the wedding that he's planned in heaven between his son and the church is in the same tradition as a Jewish Galilean wedding. And I think the Galilean part's important because there's something that's unique about a Galilean wedding that's different about any other wedding of that day and that custom of that part of the world. The Galilean wedding consists of three phases. It, begin, it, it consists of the betrothal, which happens normally when the children were very young. They may not even be of marrying age yet, but yet the father of the groom and the father of the bride have some relationship, and they've agreed that our kids need to be married. Okay, so that happens in a betrothal. And then the second phase is that, is that there's a receiving of the bride, and that happens when they're of age. And this includes that when how the groom would go get the bride and bring her to his father's house. And then the third phase is the wedding feast. So I want to talk about these three phases as we go through Revelation chapter 19. So the first phase of our wedding is the betrothal. The church is betrothed to Christ in a similar manner as a Galilean bride is betrothed to the bridegroom. Paul describes this betrothal like this. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed to you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul is seeing it this way in the way he writes to the Corinthians. But there's a, there's a unique element within the Galilean wedding, I think, that makes this very interesting for us. What makes the Galilean wedding so unique from other wedding traditions is, is the fact that there's power given to the bride that's not given to her in other traditions because in a traditional betrothing, the fathers figure out who's going to get married and there's no choice given to the bride nor the groom. But in a Galilean wedding, the power is given to the bride to reject the groom. Let's go through this. The witnesses are gathered before a Galilean wedding where they read or they listen to the father of the bride read the contractual agreement that he writes up to present to the bride and the bride's family as to what this is going to be about. So there's, agree- there's an agreement, there's a contract. And the bride has to agree to this contract so that she can't look down the road later and say, wait, 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 uh-uh. I never agreed to that. Yes, she did. That's why it's important that there's a contract written and that she doesn't have any excuses after the fact to say, no, you've, you've bait and switched me here. It's a very well-written contract. And so he makes this agreement. And then there are gifts that are exchanged between the groom's family and the bride's family with the most expensive gift reserved for the bride. There's a dowry that's paid by the groom's family to purchase the bride. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the most unique thing that happens is that the groom, the groom would pour a cup of wine and then hand the cup of wine to the bride. And what he's done right now is that he's given her all the power in what's going to happen in the next few minutes. After the, after the, the contract's been read and agreed to, after the gifts have been given, In front of all the witnesses, the bride now has the power because she could reject the bridegroom and cancel the wedding or she could continue on with it. She has the power to accept his offer to live with him forever and to be her bride or she can just say, no, I don't like you, I don't want this, and she can walk away. That's unique to the Galilean wedding. If she gives the wine back to the groom without drinking it, then that's in front of all the witnesses that's saying the wedding is off. But if she drinks from the cup, then she hands it back to the groom, 
Then he drinks, and now that's saying that the, that the wedding's on. And they often recall, they refer to this as the cup of joy. Because normally we would hope that she would receive the cup and it would be a joyful cup. The cup of joy. And there's some really interesting things about that we'll talk about as well. So she hands the, she hands the, 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 the cup back after she drinks. The groom then drinks from the cup. And then he seals the marriage covenant by saying something like this. You are now consecrated to me by the law of Moses. And I will not drink from this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. Have you ever heard that before? Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 to 29. This is at the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. And then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, this is the, this is the key, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the disciples were looking at this, and they were thinking wedding. They're Galilean. They understand what a Galilean wedding is all about. So they're thinking wedding day. They don't understand much more beyond that because they don't know what's happening. They don't know that Christ is going to be crucified at this point in time. They're just knowing wedding. They're thinking, well, okay, something's going to happen. (laughs) Something is going to be happening here soon, but they don't know. So this cup of joy that they're receiving now is that this not only marks their acceptance of the bride of Christ, but also all of us. Because this implies that we are part of them. When we take communion, we are saying the same thing. We are hearing Jesus say the same thing to us. I'm promising to come back to get you as my bride now because this is my covenantial contract with you. I have no choice. You drink the cup, the wedding's on. I'm coming back to get you someday. You know, we talk about the price, the dowry that was paid. Costly gifts are given to the bride by the groom, by the groom's father. Well, here's another interesting way in which Scripture ties all things together. You know, we don't often think of it this way, but the cross is the dowry that Jesus paid, that the Father gave to us, the bride, That was the price that paid for our sin. That was the price that paid for our wedding day. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, it says, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and author of our faith. Here it is. For the joy set before him. Here's the cup of joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The cup of joy is what Jesus was referring to here. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, paid the dowry for me, and he paid the dowry for you. And now he's gone to the Father, and he's at the Father's house, praying for us, interceding for us, waiting for that day when the Father says, go get your bride. So let's go back to our example. Let's go back to our wedding. After all this was done... And after everything's agreed to, that's just the beginning of the process. The groom and the bride do not live together after this moment. They go back to their own homes for a relatively lengthy period of time, upwards of a year, where the groom goes back and now he's building onto his father's house and he's actually building a home for the bride to live in. She goes back to her parents' house and she lives and she prepares as to be the bridegroom, to, to be the bride and she has no idea when it's going to be time for the wedding. That's another unique thing in the Jewish, in the Galilean wedding. All the other weddings, they were, they were given a date. Okay, we're going to get married on this particular date, so plan for it. But in a Galilean wedding, it's a surprise wedding. Difficult to imagine, but the bride goes back to her house and has no idea when the groom's going to come. She just has to go back and prepare herself for that day. So they go and they live a life of preparation. He's preparing the house. 
She's preparing her life so that when they come together, they're a perfect unit. They're ready to go. They lived set apart for each other until the day that they reached the, the age of, a, of the right time and the father said it's the right time where they, where they come together. But, and, but at this point in time, which I think is very important for us to recognize, because they, in this period of time, they didn't date other people. They weren't out sowing their oats, so to speak, until the day they got tied to knot. No, they were keeping themselves pure for each other. She was committed already. She was married already legally, but yet um, the, the betrothal is the, is the legal marriage happening already, but she hasn't able, been able to consummate it yet with her, with her groom, so she has to keep herself pure. Man, it is so different than our weddings today. I mean, people get engaged and they have that engagement period, but I think many times that's where bachelor parties and bachelorette parties come in because they got to get all their wild oats out before they got to settle down with one woman. How wrong is that? They're not keeping themselves pure for each other. No, they're experiencing all the fun they can in the world being a single man, single woman. How backwards. Isn't that just the way the enemy twists things around in so many ways? So, do you see the direct corollary here to our Christian life? That we now are, are betrothed to Christ, and we are the bride now living our life, preparing ourselves to be holy and pure before Him. And then, there are others that look at it and say, well, I'm saved, and once I'm saved, I'm always saved, so I can live like I want to live, and I'm going to go out and party and do all the things I want to do. Because I think heaven's going to be boring and whatever. I mean, again, do you you see how the confusion comes in? Now, I know that we're anything but pure in ourselves. I I get that. Christ takes the sin away from us. And, and, And once we accept Christ as our Savior and he washes us clean and makes us as though we haven't sinned, you see, at that moment, we're betrothed. At that moment, we're a bride of Christ. But yet it takes daily living on our side to keep ourselves pure for him. Our daily living for Christ is a cooperative effort with the Holy Spirit. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. He says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So Christ is in heaven preparing his home, and the Holy Spirit is here with us preparing us to be that holy and perfect bride. That's what's meant when we get, when you read verse 8 in Revelation chapter 9 verse 8. It says, for, for fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. See, the bride is dressed in fine linen according to this scripture. And the linen stands for righteous acts of the people. So there is a cooperative effort here that's happening. Jesus changes us from dead, dirty people to living, clean people by his shed blood. We change identities. We were a sinner. We were an enemy of God. But yet when I receive Christ, now immediately I'm transformed into a son of God, a daughter of God, and my sins are forgiven. And the beautiful thing about that is that he never remembers our sins against us. He never brings them back to us and says, you remember when? No, no. Once we receive Christ as our Savior... Our sins are washed away. But yet there's some work to do on our end to live our life preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ like the bride is in the Galilean wedding. It's a common misunderstanding, I think, that God does all the work in terms of salvation and in the preparation of those he chooses to be his bride. There is a teaching that says that we are since we're dead in our sin, that we have no life to choose. That God chooses who he wants to be saved. 
And we have no choice in that matter. That's all the power of God to choose that I'm going to save this one and I'm not going to save that one. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God would have all men come to him. All men are called to come to him. But all men now have to go through what the Galilean bride has to go through and that they're called, but she has to receive from the cup of joy to say, yes, I accept your offer. Now, we're not saved by our good works. I understand. We need to make sure we know, we know that. There's nothing here that says that we can save ourselves. It's truly the grace of God that saves us. I totally understand that and totally believe that. But I think the thing that we have to recognize is that we have a responsibility to obey Christ. The Bible says, if you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. There's a choice in the matter, right? We have choices. The power of choice is so powerful that the bride could have called the wedding off. Our power of choice is so powerful that we can reject Christ. He may have called us, but I can reject him. That's why we're created. That's the power of being created in the image of God. Think about it. That's different than being a dog or an animal that has no power to choose morally like that. Yeah, they, cho- they choose by instinct and in some things. We train them to choose. But we have a morality that is given to us through our being created in the image of God that gives us the power to choose to receive the dowry that Jesus has paid for us. I love that. You see, when that day comes of our salvation, that's day one. If we were the thief on the, co- on, on the, the, thief on the cross, our, his day one equaled his redemption. Because he didn't have an opportunity to get off the cross. So through God's grace, when he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into paradise, and Jesus looked over to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. See, that was his day one, and that was his eternity. But we don't live that way. We have day one salvation, and then we have the responsibility to live like the bridegroom is, preparing to be the perfect bride of Christ. We go back to live our life the way we want to live our life, but we have to live it in a way that prepares us, prepares us to, re- to, re- to be received as a bride of Christ. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul says, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. So what do we do about it? He says, so remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living. Verse 13, because we belong to the day, we must not, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. You see, the thing I like about this is that Paul includes the worst sins and the least sins. And he all lumps them together as one sin, right? Drunkenness, sexual promiscuity. And then he says quarreling. And how about just being jealous? Is jealous a sin? If it is, it's just as bad as being a drunkard or just as bad as being sexually promiscuous. There's no clarification, there's no distinction between sin. And yet our world has this way of making some sins to be a lifestyle that is acceptable. They've, they've taken homosexuality, they've taken the fact that I can live, I can choose to love my, a same-sex person, and I can somehow make that different than the other sins of the Bible, and I can make it all, my own classification as my identity. They're so messed up, they're so mixed up, because their identity is not in their preferences. Their identity should be also, like ours, in our made in the image of God. So our choices don't change that. But yet, the world has twisted it so much. That's why we need to be aware of things like, what is a woman? We need to be aware of how they're teaching this thing so that we can be clear in our mind, who are we? Let's not be deceived. Let's not be brought into that camp of deception. Let me finish this. Verse 14. 
Instead, he says, clothe clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. We're the bride. We're preparing ourselves. You know, an interesting side note here on more Jewish tradition in regards to clothing that in the tabernacle in the well in the wilderness when Moses day the high priest wore a very ornamental robe with a breastplate of all sorts of jewels and um, stones precious stones which he wore that when he re- when he represented God to the people when he went out into the people he put on his priestly garb which had all kinds of ornamental stuff but when the high priest went into the holy of holies He wore pure white linen. He only came in his bare necessities. You know, on Jesus, when he died on the cross, on the ninth hour, when he died, when he cried out, it is finished, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the other parts of the temple was torn in two, top to bottom. God literally tore the temple I'm sorry, tore the curtain that separated common man from the Holy of Holies. And he tore it in two, top to bottom. What did that mean? It means that you and I can be a high priest. It means that you and I have the same access to the Holy of Holies as the high priest did in the Jewish custom. But what's so interesting here is that what he's saying is that because when we go in, we don't go in in all of our jewels and all of our worldly garb, No, we go in wearing white, fine linen. (laughs) What What that means is God doesn't care about all the things you have in this world. All the things that encumber you, leave them alone. Let them go. Throw them off. Hebrews 12, 11, or 12... 12.1 12.1 says, For there, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run the race with perseverance. Right? Throw off the worldly stuff and come into the presence of the Holy of Holies in your bare necessities. Salvation is simple. Let's not make it hard. Let's not complicate it. Jesus knows who we are. God knows our hearts anyways. We can't hide anything from him. So why do we try to cover ourselves? Just come simply as you are and let him accept you and let him change you to be a bride that's ready and worthy to be married to the groom. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the second phase of the wedding is the receiving of the bride. And this represents the rapture of the church. Earlier, Jesus made it very clear that he was going away to prepare him, uh, the wedding house. And if he did, he, he, he promised that he would come back again. When the father said, son, go get your bride. John chapter 14, verse 2, it says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you will also be where I am. It's a promise. He's coming back to take his bride to be with him at his father's house. Because we're already betrothed to him, he's preparing our home, and we're patiently waiting here for his coming back. But we're to be busy. We're to be busy. We're to be prepared for the moment that that time will come. And that's the background of the parable that I'm not going to talk about today. We will later. The parable of the virgins is given in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. I encourage you to go home and read that. That's the backdrop of the parable of the virgins, that that they are tending to the bride who is waiting for the day. How do we make this application to the rapture of the church? Paul does. First First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. In that instantaneous moment, Jesus appears in the clouds, and we then are changed. We leave our earthly bodies, and we instantaneously become in our heavenly bodies. 
Prior to that, those that are already died in Christ, they are resin from their, their, resurre- their, their death grave. And then we then are presented to the Father as the bride. And that takes us to the third phase of the wedding, the wedding feast. Revelations chapter 19, 9 through 10. Let's read that so we can remember what we're talking about. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the two words of God. At that, that this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow of the servant with you, fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold to this testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. For this is a spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So, What's significant to note here, as we've already said, the bride is already the wife of the lamb. For the bridegroom had already come and taken the bride to his father's house. So the wedding feast here that's being announced here is different. It's not an announcement of the wedding union, because that's already happened. Now we're talking about the wedding feast, which is the third phase of the Galilean wedding. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. So the third phase of the wedding is about to take place, which is the feast. So now I have a question. Two questions, actually. Two questions that I think are very important for us to answer. Who is giving the invitation to the feast? Who's giving the invitation? And who is the invitation for? Who's given the invitation to this wedding feast? And who is going to be the guest list? Recognize that we must know that the bride nor the groom don't need to be invited to their wedding. They don't send invitations to each other and say, hey, come to our wedding. No, they're the ones giving the invitations. So if that's the case, the church, which is the bride isn't being invited to her own wedding supper either. She's the one given the invitation along with the groom. They're the ones inviting the guests. So now, who are the guests? Who are the guests that are being invited? Well, this gets really interesting, I believe, because we have to understand how we understand who the guests are is we need to know when did the church begin and when did the church end? Remember, the bride is the church. She's in heaven. Who is the church? That's us. When did the church age begin? The church age began on the Feast of Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on the upper, those in the upper room, that was the beginning of the church. So when does the, when does the church end? The church ends when the church ceases to exist on earth. So there is a beginning point and an ending point of the church age. We are in the middle of, we are at the latter end of the church age. We're still in the church age because the rapture hasn't occurred yet. So we're still in the church age. So who does the guest list make up? If this is the case, the the guest list are those that were saved before Pentecost and those that are saved after the church was removed from the earth. Remember, we're the church. We're the bride. We don't invite ourselves to the wedding. So the bride is inviting those that were saved before the church began, and they're inviting people that were saved after the church was taken out. So who who would this include? Well, the Old Testament saints that were saved by faith in God prior to the cross of Jesus. These people will be be brought back to life after the tribulation period as talked about in Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress. He's talking about, he's describing the the great tribulation. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from from the beginning of nations until the end. But at that time, at the end of the tribulation, at that time, your people, your people, Daniel, the Old Testament people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. So the bridegroom is inviting those tribulation or those Old Testament saints. In addition to that, there's tribulation saints that were saved and martyred during the seven year period of time in that tribulation period. And they are also being invited. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, he says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those two are those two groups are invited. The Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and yen, and still, there are those that are faithful and still alive at the end of the tribulation. Now, I think when we read a few weeks ago the 21 judgments in the tribulation, it's amazing after all those that anybody is, is alive. But yet, you have to remember that there were 144,000 Jewish missionaries that were protected by God, that the Antichrist couldn't kill, and they had they they and they created a, a great revival where they they where many Gentile and Jewish people came to know Christ in the tribulation. Many of them, probably most of them, were killed or martyred for their faith, but a few of them lived. Don't know how, but they must have because we're going to have the judgment later. We're going to have the the, the, the parable in a couple of weeks of the goats and the sheep. Well, the parable of the goats and the sheep are set at the end of the tribulation where there are people that are living are going to be judged as a sheep or a goat depending on how you treated Israel. We'll come back to that later. But there are those that are going to be alive at the end of the tribulation that are going to enter the millennial reign in their flesh. These people as well, I believe, will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So it appears then that the wedding supper will take place back on earth as the thousand-year reign of Christ begins. It's an interesting idea, but I believe then, from what I can read, then the wedding supper of the Lamb will take place back on earth. Now, I don't know about you, but again, when I go through this and I read this in a like this, and I see it all put together, this is one of the most exciting chapters in the Bible. I'm sorry. I just can't help but get excited about this. I can't help but anticipate that day when we're going to not worry about it. We're going to receive it. We're going to just walk into it, and we're going to let Jesus do all the things that he does, and we're going to be the recipients. We're going to be the bride, and we're going to just celebrate this day. Finally, we get to verse 10. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who held to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is all about the revelation of who Christ is and the fact that it's he, that Jesus is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to himself. He's being revealed as to who he is. Without Jesus, listen, without Jesus, there is no salvation. Without Jesus, there is no salvation. He is the most important thing, the most important person to ever walk this planet. And there's going to come a day when God is going to look at every person and said, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus? I'm not talking about Buddha. I'm not talking about Muhammad or Joseph Smith. No, no. What did you do with Jesus? Because the Bible says Jesus is the only way to the Father. The only way to the Father is through Jesus Christ. And that doesn't make us bigoted. And that doesn't make us narrow-minded. No, what it says is we read the Bible. And we're just reading what the Bible says. I'm not making it up. It's not my religion. I'm just simply reading the Bible. And I'm choosing to believe it. Jackie, would you come, please? So to briefly summarize for the next 45 minutes, to briefly summarize, the Jewish Galilean wedding marriage consisted of three major elements, the betrothal, the receiving of the bride, and the marriage feast. That's what the Jewish Galilean wedding considered of, or was uh, comprised of. And so figuratively speaking, with reference to the church, the betrothal takes place on earth, 
during the church age. We are betrothed. Consider yourself, if you're a saved person, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are betrothed to him. So live your life appropriately. Live your life like you are preparing yourself to be the bride of Christ because it's exactly who you are. Don't forget your identity. Don't let the devil come to you and say, oh, you can be what you want. You can be dirty. You can be live the lifestyle you want. I'm not saying that God doesn't forgive us, but that's not the right way to live. Come on, we need to know that, right? Live yourself with purity in your heart and your mind. The second phase is the receiving the bride is the rapture of the church which we're going to be a part of, I believe, sooner than later. I believe that we are in the last day of the last days. When I look around and see everything that's happening in this world, I don't have any problem saying it. And I'm not setting a date. I'm just creating an urgency in our hearts, in our lives. Creating an urgency to live for Jesus like it could be any day. Because the reality is that it could be any day because none of us have a guarantee for tomorrow as it is. So can I make this guarantee that you will see the rapture? It may be your death. Your last heartbeat will be your rapture. And when do you know? Do you know when that's going to happen? Amen. And then thirdly, the marriage feast will take place on earth following Christ's return with the church. And that will be a great celebration. God plans everything out. There are no coincidences with him, coincidences. There's no such thing as luck with God. He's a planner. He's got it all under control. This world may be spinning out of control, but he's got a plan in it all. Don't worry about it. Be an evangelist. Go out and change what you can in the world. So be encouraged and know that you are the bride. So prepare yourself. Live today preparing yourself for tomorrow. So here's the most important thing we can take away from this message. What are you doing with the cup of joy that the groom has handed you? What are you doing with it? Have you accepted the cup of joy? Indicating that you've received Christ as your Savior. Are you keeping your life pure and prepared for the day when the Father says, Son, go get your bride. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. God, what a day that is going to be. We, like John the Revelator, can only anticipate what's happening in heaven today. And heaven, for those that may not realize this, heaven is more real than earth. What we see here, what we touch, what we sense with our five senses here, will all disappear that someday. And heaven will go on and on and on forever. And so as we appreciate and anticipate that, we have the choice today given to all of us as what do we do with that cup of joy? Are we receiving it? Are we drinking from it? And are we handing it back to the groom so that the groom then can say that he's waiting for us? He's prepared the house already. Now we have to do prepare. We have to prepare our hearts. And we have to prepare our lives that we can be that pure, chaste virgin. And God, I know that many of us are already... God, we can't do this on our own. I recognize that. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need the Holy Spirit to come in and give us a sense of conviction. And then the power to live above our temptations. We're not going to be perfect people. But we can be forgiven. And we can be redeemed. And we can do our best to the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life in front of others that would show that we are different. So I pray right now for your protection on this church. This morning, if you're still struggling with that area, whether you're here or if you happen to be watching online, and if you're still struggling with that cup of joy, can I encourage you to drink it? Can I encourage you to receive it? It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Just ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Invite him into your heart. Give him room. Give him residence. Make him the center point of your life. Live a daily life. Cooperating with him. Not fighting against him for who reigns in your life. 
And then enjoy it. Enjoy life. God's given us abundance. And he wants us to enjoy and be prosperous in this world, but he wants us, first of all, to be focused in on him and him alone. Amen? Amen. Jackie and Tom, would you lead us in this song? Stand with me, if you will. You know, I just realized this. As I look at the song, it says, The Spirit and the Bride cry out to you. The Spirit would be the Holy Spirit. We, the Bride, together. I mean, I've never thought about that. But the Holy Spirit is also anxious to be reunited with His Father in Heaven. Because when the rapture happens, the Holy Spirit will go back with us. He will lead us. So the Spirit and the Bride are crying out, Come, Lord Jesus. I love that. Isn't that cool? The Spirit and the Bride. That's us. That's Him living within us. Are crying out. Join us together one more time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day today. God, I thank you for the teaching that you give us. God, I pray that we would appreciate what this is and that it would truly impact our lives that we all would have a closer walk with you today as a result of understanding the times that we live in. And so, God, I just pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly and help us to do the work in the time that we have left to evangelize and to do everything we can to win our friends and our family and those around us to come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Fellowship together as you go tonight.